everyone, and welcome to Listo. My name is Ellen, and over the next few episodes, we'll be publicizing our next mini-series in conjunction with material developed for EMS's OBGYN M3 clerkship on global women's health. This mini-series will also be co-hosted by none other than the inspiring health equity champion, who I am fortunate enough to have as a peer and friend, future Dr. Amanda Severn. Hey, everyone. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Throughout the series, we'll have some lectures and some interviews from various global women's health champions. If you would like to access the slides utilized from our lectures, or if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to listosaludglobal.gmail.com. So in this first episode, we are fortunate enough to hear from Dr. Alexandra Leader with an introduction to global health principles and practice. She is the current director of the global health division at Eastern Virginia Medical School and has been an incredibly formative mentor for both Amanda and myself. So Amanda, um, like how would you describe Dr. Leader? Where do I start? Dr. Leader is just a magical creature. Um, she has <laughs> a fantastical creature. A fantastical creature. Um, she is one of those people that without even trying, like you leave an interaction with her and you feel like empowered to create change. She's just such a powerful educator um, while also um, allowing students and learners and her mentees to have this space to do things their own way. And I really appreciate that. And she's really helped me develop into the person that I am today, to be honest. She's great. So what I'm gathering, what you're saying is that if she made Kool-Aid, what would you do with that? I would drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, I think I quote her in the intro episode of Listo. Amanda, do you think that people probably already know that global women's health is local women's health? I hope so. (laughs) But if you didn't, and this is new, no shame. That's okay, because I learned that, and hopefully now... We're all going to learn that or just reaffirm the knowledge that we already had. Absolutely. So over the next few episodes in this mini-series, we'll be learning together through all of this process. So thank you for being with us today. Alexandra Leader. I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician and public health professional and the director of global health here at EVMS. I was asked to give you a brief introduction to the principles and practice of global health, which I will try to do um, in about 30 minutes. And then we'll trust that you will get in touch with me with any further questions or discussions upon which you'd like to expand. So we're going to start with a brief story. Um, When I graduated from college and before going to medical school, I spent a year teaching cello lessons in Eastern Bolivia with a network of youth orchestras and wonderful young musicians. Um, I clearly remember the first day that I arrived, uh, cello over my shoulder, walking across the little plaza towards the church where all the children Um, rehearsed their instruments and pushing open the big wooden door and the light streaming in and illuminating the faces of all of these children that turned to look at me as I came in, Um, children who would become like family to me over the course of the year. Um, And there was one child in particular, his name was Carlos, a young violinist here in the um, lighter of the blue shirts, and he was the most dedicated youth, um, young musician in the group. He arrived every day for his classes and for orchestra rehearsals, um, always on time, always so enthusiastic. 
Um, but Carlos began to get pretty thin over the course of the year. He was losing a lot of weight, I noticed, and then he started coughing quite a bit. He would get up um, out of his seat and, and leave the orchestra rehearsals to go and cough outside. And one day when he arrived for his lesson, um, instead of putting his sheet music down on the music stand, um, he placed a chest x-ray there. And he said, profe, which means profesora, um, help me. You know, what do you see? And I had not even begun my medical studies yet, although I knew I was going to medical school, but I knew to hold the chest x-ray up to the light. And I looked at him and looked at it with tears in my eyes. And I said, uh, Carlos, I can see your heart, but I don't know what the rest of it means. Uh, and I felt such helplessness in that moment and committed to myself that I was going to learn how to take care of those kids so that the circumstances of their lives and their community would not determine whether or not they would be able to play their music. So I became a pediatrician and global health professional and Carlos, who was ultimately diagnosed and treated for his tuberculosis, um, has now become the music teacher in that town, the director of the youth orchestra. So can you all imagine a world in which the one million children who get tuberculosis each year also had access to the health care to be diagnosed and treated for that disease? And can you imagine a world in which the 385 million people that live in poverty had access to health care services so that they too could pursue their dreams and live and thrive? or even just the 15 million children in the US who live in poverty and are unable to do so. So I can imagine that world, I actively do imagine it. And that's what we're here to discuss today, a world in which we may be able to create opportunities for health so that all children and people may live to grow and thrive and make their music. So our objectives for this brief talk will be to discuss very quickly a history of global health theory and practice, um, a review of the terminology in the field of study, because the language we use is important. We're going to talk a bit about structural violence and the relation of global health to human rights. And we're going to talk about the pr principles of ethical, sustainable global health work and some of the models um, for global health partnership that is ethical and sustainable. So what is global health? There are a lot of different definitions um, that you will find in the literature and amongst those of us working in it. Um, but a good one is that of the Journal of Public Health Policy, um, which says the global health is a focus on worldwide health improvement. It's the reduction of disparities and protection against global health threats that prevail over national boundaries. That takes on whole uh, very vivid meaning, new and vivid meaning for us in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I would argue, uh, though, that poverty is actually the greatest threat to health that prevails over national boundaries, um, in addition to more classically um, conceived, you know, infectious disease pandemics and armed conflict and its consequences. Um, global health, as described by The Lancet, is the area of study research and practice that places a priority on improving health and achieving equity in health for all people worldwide. I love this definition because it makes it so clear to us that the pursuit of global health equity is both an issue, a challenge, 
and um, a responsibility as much in our local community here in Eastern Virginia as it is in Eastern Bolivia um, or in South Sudan or anywhere else that we may find ourselves living and working. Um, so global health is working to assure that each person has the optimal conditions for health, the optimal conditions to thrive, and the use of customized tools and resources to address those inequities. I really like this image because it shows us that equity and equality are actually quite different. Equality, giving everyone the same resources, the same tools, will not achieve equity because we all need different customized tools and resources. The resources needed to make sure that everyone here in Norfolk has access to clean water. It's actually quite different in nature and quantity than the resources needed in Eastern Bolivia, for example. And actually, as responsible global citizens, we actually want to take it even one step further and pursue global health equity, meanwhile addressing the unjust systems that perpetuate those inequities. So I really like this image for that reason. Um, not only are we looking to create and provide custom tools that would identify and address inequalities to achieve a state of equity, but actually also fix the system so that everyone gets equal access to those tools and the opportunities, economic opportunities, educational opportunities, and of course, health opportunities, so that the system itself is just. Um, there's a wonderful quote in the movie, Just Mercy, which if you haven't seen, I would recommend um, to all of you, but the quote is that the opposite of justice, sorry, the opposite of poverty is justice. And as we just said, that poverty is the greatest threat to health, achieving health equity is very much entwined with achieving a just society. So, Global health is pursuing a just and equitable distribution of the risk of suffering and of the tools to lessen and prevent it. And that is a quote by Paul Farmer, who is really the father of the field of global health as a validated academic pursuit within medicine, academic and community-based pursuit. So this is where we're going to talk a little bit about structural violence. And this image um, brings you into that discussion quite vividly. So the social structures or the institutions that harm people by preventing them from meeting their basic needs, health, education, security, economic potential. So poverty is not innate to us as human beings. People are marginalized by unjust societal structures and they're prevented from meeting the basic needs that we just mentioned. Um, and what's really powerful about global health is that it is an entire academic discipline that is dedicated to making access to medical care a human right. And you can see that um, the structures that might keep people from meeting basic needs are quite different in the houses to the left of this image as opposed to that, those on the right. Um, this is too where it's important to stop and sort of draw a line between the way that global health used to be discussed um, and described and sometimes still is and the way that it's envisioned and the way that we really talk about it and, and act now and that is that global health is not charity work or care um, where those who need charity are sort of intrinsically inferior um, it, what we're doing is very different than regarding the poor as powerless or impoverished because of historical events or processes um, we are not the saviors that come expressing generosity. Um, you know, Pablo Freire, who's a wonderful um, 
Brazilian educator and wrote the, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He said that true generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy um, these unjust social orders. So we are not the global health that is coming to, sorry, we are not the global north that is coming to help the global south. We're not here to perpetuate that power dynamic um, or that economic and political and cultural dependence. And we're actually partnering with those who are suffering the structural violence that we otherwise would be perpetuating. So no one is innately poor. We just have people who are actively marginalized by unjust systems, by an unjust society. So in global health, we are challenging that model of leftover medicine or secondhand medicine or charity work. Um, it is not a model of charity healthcare on which we are practicing or a model of development, which exists, which suggests that some are less developed than others. Um, we are truly partnering with those who are marginalized by the society in which we live, by the systems that we would otherwise be perpetuating. Um, so that means that we want to empower those who have an unjust distribution of the risk of suffering, those who are living in those colorful houses on the left, on the hillside. Um, we are working to dismantle the social and political structures that perpetuate that poverty. That is global health. Okay, so this is a busy slide, but I'm just going to go over it in broad strokes here um, and talk about some of the things that I, the terminology that I'd like you to be aware of, the shift in terminology and some of the key events. And you can read about this um, forever and ever <laughs> thereafter. Uh, so the roots of global health uh, come from what used to be referred to as tropical medicine or colonial medicine in the 16th to the 19th centuries. Um, and tropical medicine was more the result of international health measures between imperial nations and their colonies. Um, mortality rates were high due to new conditions of infectious disease. So these scientific advancements were used to protect colonists and otherwise control and often civilize, quote unquote, um, native populations. Um, in the 1880s, uh, while the French Panama Canal was being constructed, um, of the tens of thousands of workers that were there doing so, over 85% of them were hospitalized and 22,000 of them died, um, primarily due to yellow fever, which we did not quite understand at the time. Um, so the project was ceased and the land was ultimately bought by the US. And then Walter Reed built upon um, previous research that was done by Carlos Finlay in Cuba to figure out what yellow fever was, um, the vector that was uh, helping it to become transmitted and, and infecting everyone. And ultimately they were able to complete the Panama Canal project because of that research. Um, Carlos Finley had started studying yellow fever in Cuba because for every one soldier that was killed in combat during the Spanish American war, 13 of them were killed by yellow fever. So you can see what it is that's driving this research. Um, it is not uh, the desire at that point to try to achieve health equity, but rather to protect um, the economic and imperial uh, priorities of certain, certain countries and people. Um, in 1913, you can see there on this, um, on this timeline, the Rockefeller Foundation was created. And this was the largest funder, the single largest funder of global health in the first half of the 20th century. So one of the major eff efforts of the Rockefeller Foundation then was to construct public health schools, both in Nor North America and Europe. And that would be training personnel 
who could, they could send to Latin America and the Caribbean to treat these new tropical diseases. Um, I want you to jump forward now to 1978, and that was when the Alma-Ata Declaration, which was co-sponsored by the, w the World Health Organization, the WHO, um, was signed. And that declared, for the first time ever, the need for urgent action by all governments, all health and development workers, um, and the entire world community to protect and promote the health of all people. They called it Health for All, and they wanted to create that healthcare access for all by, two, by the year 2000 and to do so primarily through primary care access. And this was pretty revolutionary at the time, um, as you know, because we are uh, beyond the year 2000. Um, this did not happen. We did not achieve healthcare access for all by the year 2000, and it wasn't because of any um, lacking um, nobility or honor of the goal um, of this declaration, but rather because it didn't have a firm economic plan to implement it. And that's why we are still working uh, tirelessly to make sure that all do have access to healthcare uh, and primary healthcare. Um, but that was a really important time because it was the first time that the world actually came together and said that. Okay, so we're going to move forward there on the timeline now. And um, as we've moved from tropical medicine and colonial medicine, sort of international medicine, which is what we're describing now, where it was really um, coming from one country to look at the medical problems in another, rather than intercountry medicine within a community, within a society. We're now gonna move towards the Millennium Development Goals um, in 2000. And I think actually I have a different slide for that, yes. So the Millennium Development Goals um, were goals that were drawn up by the UN, by all countries in the UN, um, and focused on eight, as you can see, eight different um, goals related to health and to poverty and to education. Um, and they were actually quite ambitious um, in terms of the goals that they wanted to achieve by the year 2015. So they really wanted to focus everyone on these eight measures that would be empowering the poorest and hardest to reach communities on the planet. Um, we did not achieve them in their entirely, but in their entirety, but the report card was quite impressive. So once we got everyone around the table and decided that we would focus funding and major um, government funded projects on these eight goals, we were actually able to accomplish quite a bit more than we ever had before. So between 2000 and 2000, well, when we started measuring in 2000, um, these goals specifically to 2015, the global under five years mortality rate declined by more than half. Um, so it was dropping, it dropped actually even more than that. If you look from um, 1990 to 2015, it dropped from 90 um, to 43 deaths per 1000 live births during that time. Um, during that time, the, during the MDG area, the um, measles vaccination alone helped to prevent nearly 15.6 million deaths. Um, the number of globally reported measles declined by 67%. Um, the maternal mortality ratio declined by 45% worldwide, which is particularly important as you're here in your OBGYN rotation. Um, and most of that reduction actually occurred after the year 2000. Um, between 2000 and 2013, they estimated that maternal uh, mortality dropped from 3.5 million cases to 2.1 million cases. Um, and new HIV infections fell by about 40% during this MDG, Millennium Development Goal period. 
Um, however, despite all of the successes, obviously the poorest and the most vulnerable are still um, being left behind. So gender inequalities persist, huge gaps exist between the poorest and the richest households, between rural and urban areas. Um, and now we're more aware than ever that climate change, environmental degradation are all undermining a lot of this progress um, that was achieved and the, poor, the poorest are suffering the most um, from those changes. So millions of poor people still live in poverty and hunger and without access to all of the basic services um, that we recognize uh, are human rights. So there are about 800 million people that still live in extreme poverty and suffer from hunger despite um, our attempt to achieve all of these goals. So then we're gonna move forward now to the Sustainable Development Goals, which superimposed the Millennium De Development Goals um, in 2015. So you can see we've now expanded um, to 17 goals rather than those eight. There are 17 focus areas, um, and they go beyond the symptoms of poverty. We actually start addressing issues of peace, stability, human rights, and good governance. Um, so while the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals focus more on the context of rich donors aiding poor recipients. Um, the world has obviously changed quite dramatically and the way that we speak about global health has changed quite dramatically. And actually official development assistance, so government funded USAID, USAID type projects um, are now actually smaller than a lot of the other resource flows. Um, and the majority of the poorest people are no longer just living in low-income countries, but are actually living in middle-income countries. So inequality is the issue now. It's not just national-level poverty. It's actually, a, these inequalities are now applying to rich and poor countries alike. Um, so the sustainable development goals are really important because it's a set of goals that are applicable to every country, to every setting. And that really does underlie the definition and, and the pursuit of global health equity as we just um, have been talking about it and described it and as it is now now stands as a field of medicine. And you can see that the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, focus on empowering women, on mobilizing everyone, and in partnering with local governments. Um, and unlike the Millennium Development Goals, the Sustainable Development Goals uh, focus on monitoring and evaluation and accountability for achieving these goals, which is actually Obviously critical if um, we look at what happened with the declaration of um, Amaata. All right. So I want to say a bit about the field within global health that focuses on immigrant and refugee health, especially, and that is migration health. So the study and the um, research and clinical practice that focuses on this very complex relationship between migration and health. Um, Carlos and his young um, Bolivian music maker friends were suffering the health determinants of structural violence, so social structures or social institutions um, that harm people because it prevents them from meeting their basic needs. Um, so poverty and cycles of uh, societal deprivation of education, of economic opportunity, of women's empowerment. But now we're gonna focus a little bit more on the situations in which we're seeing that structural violence combined with violent conflict and persecution, um, which leads to migration and forced displacement. So why is global health and particularly migrant health um, such an important field to be discussing at this time? So it is because we are living in a globalized world um, and 
we are more connected than ever in one sense. We have um, commercial travel, usually, <laughs> internet, Zoom, WhatsApp, FaceTiming, social media. Um, ideas are tweeted around the world instantaneously. We have mass uh, exportation of culture and of products. Um, but at the same time, we are see seeing unprecedented levels of violent fragmentation and displacement in the world. Um, we have 70.8 million forcibly displaced people, which is more than the entire population of France. Um, and, so, and approximately one person is forcibly displaced every two seconds uh, as a result of conflict or persecution, which is just um, unbelievable and, and unacceptable. Um, additionally, 3.9 million stateless people, at least, um, actually the UN thinks it's um, more like 10 million people who are stateless, um, have no country that recognizes them, and so then they can't even ap apply to be official refugees and be resettled. Um, and then according to the, to the UN, actually two-thirds of all of these refugees, um, of all refugees worldwide, come just from five countries, so Syria, Afghanistan, South Sudan, Myanmar, and Somalia. So as you can imagine, the health implications of migration are great, are far-reaching. We have all of the pre-migration factors that cause people to be forcibly displaced in the first time, um, in the first place. War, poverty, hunger, uh, natural disaster, political instability. Um, we have all of the health risks of the journey itself, um, which if you, you know, do any research are just unbelievably um, horrific. The torture, sexual assault that takes place, loss of relatives, loss of life and limb, long stays in refugee camps, um, accidental injury, uh, environmental exposures, infection, et cetera. And then of course, all of the health risks um, to which migrants are, are um, exposed upon arrival to wherever um, they, they ask for asylum or are resettled. Um, and that can be anything from imprisonment to long asylum-seeking processes and detention, um, language barriers, discrimination, entire loss of social status, um, and economic opportunity, marginalization, um, lack of knowledge about health system and, and the society in which they, they now live. Um, so migration is certainly recognized as a determinant, as a social determinant of health, but the bidirectional relationship between migration and health is really complex and not well-documented. Um, and obviously includes both the physical and mental health implications of migration. Um, just briefly, it is no wonder then <laughs> that conflicts, displacement, and natural disaster uh, account for 60% of preventable maternal mortality, 54% of under five mortality, and 45% of neonatal mortality. All can be attributed to these conflicts, displacement, natural disasters. Um, the majority of this is happening in low resource settings, not necessarily in low income countries, but in low resource settings. Um, and it is important to know that these health challenges um, are, are enduring. So armed conflict is followed by up to a 25, 26% increase in infant and child mortality. And these effects can linger for seven to eight years on average after the acute event. Um, so these health consequences, they're enduring on both the personal and a population level. And these are people in your community and in your clinic and in your hospitals, regardless of where you are and when. Um, 
I know that you do here study a lot about social determinants of health, but particular to migration health and global health are the barriers of uh, language, lack of insurance or document documentation, um, lack of medical records, poverty itself, fear and stigma, um, a political climate, high mobility, um, low educational attainment, and housing conditions. These are just some of the barriers uh, to care for immigrants and refugees. So why is it so important then to have global health and migration health um, training and opportunities? And I would say core curricular elements um, and undergraduate and graduate medical education. So we are in the midst of a pandemic that is amplifying all of the longstanding social and economic inequities in our communities and worldwide, and that is tied to healthcare, to poverty, to racism, to documentation status. So understanding these global transnational health issues and those, these specific social determinants of health has never been so relevant. Um, I would also say that migration, as we've just discussed, is progressively characterizing the communities for whom we care, regardless of where you work. So the American Academy of Pediatrics tells us now that immigrant children represent the fastest growing segment of the U.S. population, that one in every four children in the United States, that's 18.4 million children, um, live in an immigrant family. And in a world where 70.3 million people are forcibly displaced, um, so many have experienced the grave health determinants of migration that we're discussing. And that as care providers, we have to be aware of them. We have to understand them. Um, these people are our community, our world, our patients, and our children, our future, and we have to know how to care for them. So I believe that it is res our responsibility uh, to raise and to be physicians and health professionals um, who are not only aware of the changing needs of their immediate and global communities, but have the capacity to collaboratively address those needs and to do so ethically and to know how to practice global health. Um, and thirdly, uh, who perceive their responsibility to care for and partner with um, the global community, because it will almost certainly be a part of the dem demographic for whom you care, regardless of where you practice. So we need to be armed with the awareness, the capacity and the responsibility. So because it is our responsibility um, to do so, what do I mean by building capacity for ethical global health practice? Um, there are entire courses that could be taught just on this, but I would like to review some of the core principles of being a global health, uh, globally minded citizen and, and being a global health practitioner. Um, these are core principles that should be the foundation of any community-based global health or migration health initiative. Um, so it our work, and our, our presence in the community has to be based on partnership, on bi-directional partnerships with community leaders, with local and international NGOs, with state agencies, um, with whoever the, whomever the stakeholders are um, for service and education and research and advocacy um, based on community-identified needs. So if you have those bi-directional partnerships, you can work to address the needs that the community themselves recognize. They know what they need and they should be a part of the agenda and what we're addressing. Um, and in those bi-directional partnerships, you have pooling of resources and of knowledge, of innovation, of ownership of our work, um, because that's how both sides, how everyone gets truly invested and there's ownership and authorship when you're talking about research. There should be always, always bi-directional partnerships upon which 
our work is based. Um, cultural humility is a core pillar of any, um, of, I'd say of all healthcare and certainly of global health work. Um, so cultural humility, the, the continuous process of self-awareness and reflection of your own values and biases, um, always cultivating a sensitivity and an openness to others' cultural identity, um, and always with the intention of honoring the beliefs and the customs and the values and experiences of others. So it is a commitment to a lifetime of learning, um, of self-awareness and a reflection of yourself, and always of learning from those around you. Global health is an interprofessional and a cross-disciplinary collaborative effort. So we know that health is not just medical. Health is a biosocial phenomenon. And so you need to be working with um, professionals and, and advocates that represent many different disciplines that can together work to improve co health comprehensively, health and well-being. Um, linguistic competency is something that I feel uh, particularly passionate about and, um, and that we work to address here on this campus for sure. I think that we need to make every effort to speak competently in the language of the community uh, in which we are working. I think that corrects a power imbalance and it leads to trusting and, and meaningful engagement um, that is bi-directional. And if you don't know how to speak or cannot speak the language of the community in which you're working, you need to have an interpreter and you need to know how to work with an interpreter, which is a skill set unto itself um, and not always intuitive. And sustainability is um, sort of the fiber that, that binds all of the work that we do. Uh, it must characterize all of our global health endeavors. We do not do one-offs, just one-time things. Um, we want to build uh, systems of health and health equity that will endure, that will not fall apart um, the minute that, that someone turns away from it, that are not done just uh, for an instant gratification uh, on any side. Okay, and then almost lastly, um, it's important to respect the complexities. So we must always, always be aware of unintended consequences of any sort of engagement in a community, especially a community where there's cross-cultural engagement um, and transnational engagement. And um, there are some pictures here representing the cholera epidemic in Haiti. Um, it's been ongoing since 2010 um, and actually has its origins in the introduction of a Nepali strain of cholera that came with a UN peacekeeping mission from Nepal that arrived shortly after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. Um, cholera had been unseen in Haiti in, in 100 years, and so there was no immunity. And so this um, epidemic has had devastating consequences in the country and is just um, one of the many, 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 many um, stories we can tell and talk about when we think about engagements in communities and unintended consequences and, and the importance of being aware of that. So um, this has been a very brief and very full overview, but I did just want to come back, come down from the 30,000 uh, foot view and just talk about some of the global health training that we do here in um, at EVMS and in Norfolk and Hampton Roads and on the Eastern Shore. Um, we do have a number of health fairs and free clinics and educational endeavors and collaborative research 
um, initiatives in our immigrant and refugee communities here in Hampton Roads. Um, you can see just some pictures of our health fairs here, one of the dental health fairs um, and our Hispanic immigrant community, our Latinx immigrant community. Um, some pictures from our refugee health fairs. Here's a dental education session. Um, here you see us filling out uh, back to school forms for a lot of our refugee families who otherwise cannot matriculate in school. And you can imagine even uh, for those of us who were born and raised uh, here, the Virginia back to school form is not always easy to fill out. So you can imagine if you're unfamiliar with the health system and with the language, how difficult that could be. Uh, here's a picture of one of our health fairs on the Eastern shore with our migrant health workers and, uh, and some more of the pictures from the back to school fairs and ophthalmology screening um, and a refugee health fair. And here's some of our um, global health training that takes place outside of uh, Hampton Roads. Um, we have our very own Ellen Dowling, uh, current fourth year student um, with you, who is taking water samples um, from a community outside of Cochabamba, Bolivia, this past year during her global health fellowship. Um, you can see three of our now also current M4 students um, who are working with me on the Texas-Mexico border in one of the migrant health shelters. Um, in the clinic there. Uh, we have pictures of us working with a floating doctors um, NGO in rural Panama, helping to set up mobile clinics um, with that partner. We have some collaborative research that's being done in the pediatric emergency room in a children's hospital in the Dominican Republic, where I've been collaborating for about a decade now. Um, you see uh, EVMS students putting very good ultrasound skills um, to work with supervision um, in a small clinic for an indigenous community, a Mayan indigenous community, the Seltal, um, people outside of Ocosingo, uh, Mexico, in Chiapas. This is a picture of the border wall on, in um, El Paso, Juarez. And um, another, another form of our partnership in the Dominican Republic, um, implementing neonatal resuscitation training with the pediatric residents there. So you can see that our global health partnerships and pursuits take many different forms. Um, we don't have time to go through this video now, but if you do go to this link, you'll be able to see a beautiful video that was put together um, by EVMS after a recent uh, EVMS delegation partnered with um, the NGO MedGlobal and worked in a Rohingya refugee camp um, in Cox's Bazaar, Bangladesh, uh, very close to the Myanmar border. Um, and we'll give you a very, um, a very uh, powerful view of the work that was done there um, and the partnership that, uh, that endures with that community. So um, you will be finding yourself here at the interface of staggering global health crises that we've discussed today um, and that we're living right now in the COVID pandemic. Um, but also face-to-face -face with the individuals uh, who will share their stories with you. And um, I'd like you to think about how you can make, make space for those stories, um, for those children like Carlos and how they might change you and the way that you view your role as a healthcare professional in this, um, in this beautiful, uh, broken world in which we live. And I hope that you will let the stories um, of the people who, with whom you encounter and, and engage shape you and inform you and inform the way that you approach your profession. Um, and I hope that you start asking yourself important questions about your role as a physician in your global community and in this globalized world. Um, your answers to those questions will inevitably change over the next days and weeks and months and years as they should. Um, but start now. Start asking those questions and 
um, we want you to be well poised to learn um, and to be worthy and aware and humble and very intentional partners um, for our global community and for your patients. So thank you for your time and attention. Um, and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to talk a lot more about this in the future. You've been listening to Dr. Alexandra Leader give an introduction to global health principles and practice. Wow, Amanda, I have to say, that was probably one of the most potent lectures I have ever heard, ever. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, you know, the fantastical creature, Dr. Leader, does it again. Um, yeah, it's just so important to have these topics consistently at the forefront of your mind and reminding yourself of the complexities of these issues and having ethical and actual ways to make a difference. So it was great. Fired up. I'm ready to go. Yeah, I'm fired up too, man. (laughs) (laughs) I need to do something now. (laughs) Anyways, uh, thanks for listening. And please let us know if you have any further questions, reflections, or would like to get involved with the podcast at listosaludglobal at gmail.com. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are only of the individuals and not of the organizations or institutions mentioned. We look forward to having you with us for the next episode of the series. Stay tuned.